Well, in this room this morning, there are several hundred people and we all come from different backgrounds and we've had different experiences this week. Perhaps you've had a really, really good week. You'd give it a 10 out of 10. Perhaps you've had a really, really bad week. You'd give it like a one out of 10. Maybe you've struggled this week with, with anger. Maybe you've struggled this week with self-doubt. Maybe you've struggled this week with insecurity. Maybe you've questioned your salvation. Maybe you've wondered if worship is worth it. Maybe you've wondered if God is alive and well in this world. It's so easy to get distracted for all of the blessings we have. It's so easy to get distracted with the distractions of life and to take our eyes off of Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. But today we're going to discuss in greater detail the great doctrines of salvation. And the great doctrines of salvation are more than just truths from God's word, but they do correct our stinking thinking. And they do encourage us and offer us comfort on an emotional level when we're struggling. So as I've said prior in this series, good theology leads to good doxology, which leads to good praxology. Meaning that when we get the content of our faith right, it affects our worship and it affects our practice. So we're not just having a heady conversation about the Bible as we come into church on Sunday. We want to grow in our understanding. We wanna love the Lord with our minds, but that will, with the help of the Holy Spirit, affect our worship. And if our worship is being hindered, it's probably because there's a lie that's taken up residence in our minds. Or if our practices have been hindered, it's probably because we're not worshiping. And the reason why we're not worshiping is because lies have taken up residence in our minds. And so as we look to God's word for guidance and direction, the wonderful thing about it is that God's word is like a, an air purifier, a blood purifier. It purifies our thinking, it purifies our heart, it purifies our hands, and it allows us to live thoughtfully, to live worshipfully, and to live practically under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our series, if you're just joining us, is called Heretics in the Battle for Orthodoxy. What we're trying to do is pound some stakes in the ground, put some boundary posts up so that we understand what the Bible says about the major aspects of our systematic theology. And we've discussed things like who God is. We call that theology proper and who Christ is. That's Christology. And who the Holy Spirit is. That's our pneumatology. And we had a conversation about our church, that's called ecclesiology. And now we're in part two of soteriology, which is the biblical doctrines of salvation. And I divided this into two messages. So last week we looked at the antecedent aspects of our salvation, meaning what was God doing before the foundation of the world? What was God doing before our conception? What was God doing before our births to ensure that we might come to faith in Jesus Christ? We discussed that. And now we're going to enter into the beginning aspects of salvation. So how is it that God brings us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then what are the continuing aspects of salvation? If you're already saved, if you're a born again believer, what is God doing in your life now? And what do you have to look forward to? So if you recall, I introduced to you this, this Latin term, ordo salutis, the order of salvation. So if you look at the Bible, it can be confusing at times because when you're talking about salvation, you bump into all these words. 
Words like election, words like regeneration and conversion and justification and glorification and sanctification and faith and mercy and grace and repentance. It's like, well, how does this all fit together? Is it, is that, are those all synonyms? I know they have something to do with salvation, but how do they all fit together? And what the Ordo Salutis does is it seeks to take the various aspects of biblical soteriology and put them in a logical order, not necessarily a linear order. So what we mean by that is these things aren't necessarily taking place. One's here and then a minute later, this one, and a year later, this one. It's not necessarily a linear time order, but it's a logical order to our salvation. So when it comes to the beginning aspect of our salvation, which again, affects our preaching, it affects our our assurance, our worship, our priorities, it reduces pride, it reduces fear, it reduces hopelessness, it drives us to worship, it drives us to a different practice. The beginning aspects of of salvation are really critical to understand. So God God has done his work in history past to set his sights on you. But how is it that you can be saved or how is it that you are saved? Well, step number one is what we call the doctrine of regeneration. Maybe you've heard me speak of this before, but the doctrine of regeneration means that God gives spiritual life to the spiritually lifeless. You can consult John chapter three, where Jesus says in John chapter three, Verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, assuming that you've been born once, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When you're born, more accurately conceived, you're given physical life, you're alive. But because of the sins of Adam and Eve, you've inherited a sin nature, and you come into this world spiritually lost. So God then comes upon his people and he rebirths us. We are regenerated. Another passage that speaks to this doctrine is Titus 3.3. So we've looked at John 3.3, now Titus 3.3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures. This is the old life. Remember it? Don't remember it for too long. But you remember what it used to be like? Passing our days in malice and envy. See, these are, these are hallmarks of the lost person, not hallmarks of a believer. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Who wants to go back to that kind of a life? No, thank you. So how is it that we have moved from that kind of a life characterized by those things to the life we're living now? Well, the Bible tells us, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not we saved ourselves, but he saved us. What was the basis of that? Oh, because I was a really good guy. No, that's not what the text says. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, This is why any view of salvation that gives you the credit is a false view of salvation. Not by works of righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So regeneration is God's defibrillator. He looks at the dead man and he puts the paddles on and boom, brings you to life. That's the spark. We call this the doctrine of regeneration. Now, once a person is regenerated, they are then converted. So the second doctrine, there's gonna be five of them, by the way, under the title of the beginning aspects of salvation is conversion. And conversion involves both repentance and faith. Both repentance and faith. So repentance essentially is about turning away from sin. In the book of Acts, chapter three, verse 19, there is a general call that goes out to all men to repent. So we have what's called a general call. It's a general call. Repent and believe. Who gets to hear that? Everybody. Repent and believe. But then there's an effectual call where that call is made effective, where God takes it and makes it personal, where God regenerates, where God applies it, where God actually brings about change in a person's life. The Bible says in Acts chapter three, verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Turn back to what? To God's original intention and purposes for us to live as creatures, not our own little lords and saviors, to trust in Christ, to stop rebelling, to stop running, to stop seeking separate paths to salvation. So this particular passage is is speaking more accurately of the, the general call to repent and turn back that our sins might be blotted out. Now, let me just introduce you to a few Biblical words that help us to flesh out this idea of repentance because it's important for us to have a proper understanding of what repentance is. So when we look at the Old Testament scriptures, which was written originally in Hebrew, there are a couple of Hebrew words that are translated into English as repentance. One of them is nakam. And this word has a, a few different shades of meaning to it. It can mean to sigh, to pant, to groan, And then leaning more towards repentance, it can also mean to lament or to grieve. So innate to to repentance is this idea that I'm grieving my sin. I'm lamenting it. I'm sorry for it. I wish I hadn't done it. Then there's a Hebrew word shuv and shuv takes it a step further. Shuv adds this aspect of forsaking sin. So Nakam, I wish I hadn't done it. But you could say, man, I wish I hadn't done it. But oh, well, I'll do it again. So repentance has to, in order to become full repentance, move towards a forsaking of sin. And then in the Greek New Testament, there's a word metamelomai. And this means to feel a care, or a concern, so very similar to nakam, to feel a care or a concern, but then it also has this idea of regret, which is not dissimilar from the idea of grieving or lamenting one's sin. And then there's another New Testament word, metanoio, and it means to change your mind, to think differently. So if you add these words together, it helps us really to understand the nature of repentance. Repentance in part is 
man, I wish I hadn't done it. But it also involves, I'm gonna forsake it. I'm gonna denounce it. I'm gonna identify this sin in my life and push it away. And then it also involves an active step where I'm gonna actually move away from it. I'm gonna change the way I think about it. I'm no longer gonna value it. I'm no longer gonna pursue it. I'm no longer gonna like it. I'm no longer gonna think highly of it. I'm gonna push, push that sin away. So in the life of a person that's truly converted, you will see elements of true repentance. Now, are we fully in 100% repentant from all sin on the day we're saved? No, because our sin runs so deep, it takes a lifetime to weed it out. Thank God, by the way, that on the day of our salvation, it doesn't make us aware of all of our flaws. We'd probably just drop dead in despair. But over time, as we hear the word preach, we become aware of those dark little sins in our lives. And now we become responsible to avail ourselves of God's grace and mercy to weed it out. Part of conversion then is also faith. So by, in repentance, one could say, to make it simple, we turn away from sin. What are we turning toward? We're turning towards Christ. So in, in repentance, we denounce sin and we announce or proclaim Christ. In faith, we turn toward Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 teaches us, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. Faith is God's instrument to make our salvation real. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by the instrument of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace there is not simply, wow, I'm, I'm just feeling really chill. I just have a peaceful attitude, but it's, it's a positional peace. We're no longer aliens and strangers, enemies of God, but we are invited into his family. Some of you, Maybe asking the question right now, well, what about all the people I've met in my spiritual journey who did believe, who had faith, who repented, but who fell backwards? How do you explain that? Well, the Bible is a very real book. And there are situations in the scripture where in the first century, we, we meet people like that. Remember Judas? Judas was one of the 12 I mean, he got first-person sermons with Jesus every single day for three years. But at the end, he was outed as a fraud. The Bible says in Matthew, 7, Matthew chapter 7 that some will say, specifically it says, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. Remember that? Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, you're my savior, will enter into the kingdom of God. So it's like, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that some will believe, some will have faith, some will repent, but they won't enter into the kingdom of God? Well, during the Reformation, this was a question that many of the reformers wrestled with. Like, what is faith? It's important for us to understand what faith actually is. You know why? Because in the modern evangelical church, a lot of people think of it as a sentimental emotion. I'm a person of faith, meaning I've checked my brain at the door. It's like the antithesis to rationality. You can be rational or you can just have faith. God bless those people that have faith, but they're not very scientific. They're not very mathematical. They're not very smart. We've created a culture where you, it's like faith is over here. It's this 
airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky, not really sure what it's about, but it feels good kind of stuff. And then there's the rational man over here that has walked away from faith into true enlightenment. Is that your definition of faith? It's sort of like stepping into the darkness, you know, opening a door into a dark room and stumbling around for the rest of your spiritual life. That's not what faith is. Faith involves three aspects. The, the Latin reformers put it to us this way. It involves what's called notitia. Listen to that word, notitia, knowledge. It involves knowledge. So what, what kind of knowledge? Well, the kind of knowledge we've been preaching on in this series, the knowledge of who, who Christ is, who you are, what sin is, what salvation is. So it's knowing truth, but it's not just knowing truth. It also involves what we call a census. A census we could translate as belief, but more literally, assent. So I know it to be true. Now I'm assenting to it. Remember the Bible says that even the demons know, but they don't believe. The demons know the truth. In fact, the devil's doctrine is probably better than yours. The devil's doctrine is probably better than yours. He knows the truth. He's been around for a long time to study it, to observe it, to hear it. But he, he will not assent to it, nor can he, by the way. He is utterly depraved. But he cannot assent to it and he will not assent to it. So there will be people in our culture that say, oh, I, I believe that there was a guy named Jesus and he was resurrected from the dead and we're sinners. But that's the limit to their belief. There's no assent. And then, of course, the third aspect is fiducia which means trust. So I, I have my content, I've assented to it, and I am trusting in it. Now imagine this, imagine the person that believes it's true, but doesn't assent to it. Are they truly converted? No. Imagine the person that believes it, assents to it, but doesn't actually rest in it or trust in it. So is that person truly converted? No. That's not true faith. And this explains why, why, you will, why you will have people of quote unquote faith, people who come into churches and sign doctrinal statements and say, yeah, I believe all that. But if you look at their life, they're not resting in Christ. They're not actually resting in Christ. They're resting in their denomination or their religiosity or their jobs or their social relationships. You know, we want to be relational as a church, but we don't want to fall into the trap of coming to church just because we have good relationships. Otherwise, this is just a big old cheers bar. A place I go where everybody knows my name. So one must believe, assent, and trust or rest. And this is all part of true saving faith. Now, when we speak of conversion, we, we need to go back to regeneration and say this. It's regenerating grace that enables us to turn to Christ and forsake sin. So while there is a call, Aaron, Aaron Rock, yes, you need to repent of your sin. Okay, that's the general call. The effectual call is when God overwhelms me with my sin, convicts me of my sin, helps me to see my spiritual lostness. 
and I exercise faith and I repent. But behind the scenes, what I discover as I start to read my Bible is God enabled it. God affected regeneration in my life and enabled me to have faith and repentance. The third logical step in our salvation is the doctrine of union with Christ, often skipped as people discuss matters of salvation, but I don't wanna skip it today because I think it's important. Union with Christ is the next aspect of our salvation. Union with Christ is a mysterious but spiritual connection between the saved and Jesus, whereby we share in, we're united with his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his glorification, and check this out, his inheritance, his inheritance. So this is why we often say we're in Christ. It's not like we're standing inside of him. It's not a spatial thing, but we're in Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. We're united with Christ. Christ carried a cross through the streets of of Jerusalem. We're called to carry our cross. We're called to share in his sufferings. We're called to walk in his footsteps. In communion, we ingest symbols of his body and blood. In baptism, we radically identify with his death, death, burial, and resurrection. These are all very intimate acts. And they all portray our radical union with Christ. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. Here's what we read there. I have been crucified with Christ. Wait, I thought he was crucified for me. Well, he was, but you were actually crucified with him as well. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So in our union with Christ, there is a radical new identity that's given to us. A lot of talk in culture about your identity. I wanna pick my identity. What's your identity? I'll tell you what my identity is. It's Christ. And this should be the, the call of every Christian to understand that our identity is in Christ, not in our ethnicity. Who cares? Our truest identity is not even in our gender. Our truest identity is in Christ. This is why Galatians teaches us there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, we're all in Christ. It's not denying the fact that those are realities in a, in a physical world, but our identity is in Christ. Now in our union with Christ, we are given justification, which is probably the most commonly preached subject in the Ordo Salutis. Justification is really, really important. We talk about justification by grace through faith alone. We talk about that a lot. It's an important doctrine. To be justified is to have your guilt removed. So we're born sinners. In, justify, in God's justifying grace, our, our sin is removed. So I know that sometimes we fall into the trap of saying, yeah, we're sinners saved by grace. Well, technically, no. Technically, we're not sinners if we're saved. Meaning that that is not our status. Do we sin? Oh yeah, we sin, but our status is not sinner. That's not the label we wear. When God looks at us, we're saints, which is a word applied to all true believers in the scripture, not just a select few who perform miracles and been dead for five years. 
We are saints who've been saved by God's grace and in justification, our guilt is removed. Justification is a forensic legal act whereas the divine, whereby the divine judge of all things who alone determines what's truly right or wrong declares the sinner to be innocent. He brings his gavel down and he says, you are innocent, not because you've been proven innocent, but because Jesus Christ has substituted his perfection for your imperfection. It is the act whereby God declares a sinner righteous on the basis of the sufficiency of Christ's merit, his death, burial, resurrection. And it is the act whereby God imputes Christ's righteousness to you, gives it to you, lays it on your lap. It becomes yours. You now own it. So in Christian debates, there's discussions often about what's called imputed grace, which is what we would teach as a biblical doctrine versus infused grace. So in highly sacramental churches, like Roman Catholicism, if you study the, the, uh, the Catholic catechism, I'm not putting words in their mouths. I've studied the Catholic catechism, went to a Catholic school, went to a Catholic university, I know it. We have sacraments and the sacraments are the means whereby you are infused with grace. This is why you'll see people in Catholic churches sometimes come to the front and take communion who you know are sleeping with their girlfriends and living in sin. It's like, why are you doing that? Because they want an injection. They get an injection of grace. It's infused grace. So infused grace is fundamentally grace that's offered to the, to the, the human participant when the human participant does something, responds in some way. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna cooperate with God's grace in order to receive it. That's infused grace. We would teach imputed grace, meaning that God's grace alone imputes puts upon you the righteousness of Christ. Where do we see that in scripture? Well, we see it in Romans chapter three. Some key passages of the Bible, some key chapters you'll, you'll hear me reference a lot are passages like Romans one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. And John three, if you wanna study more about your soteriology, you should become familiar with those chapters of the scripture. In Romans chapter three, it says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. So that pretty much blows out of the water infused righteousness. It's, it's given to you how? By his grace, not by an action, a merit, participation in a sacrament, and it's a gift. So if someone gives you a gift this Christmas and they say, I'm gonna give you this gift that costs 500 bucks and all you have to pay me for, for it is $1. Say, well, that is a huge deal. I'll take it. But technically, it's not a gift anymore. It's just extremely cheap. So, if you pay anything for it, it's not a gift. So, a gift by definition is free, it's not merited. So, you don't even get a little bit of credit for it. So, it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if it were through human effort, so let's just say for a moment, we're wrong about imputed righteousness and we have to do something, show up at the right time, jump in a baptistry, participate in communion, show up at church, tithe. If there's some sort of thing we gotta do 
in order to receive justifying righteousness. Follow my logic. If there's something we have to do to follow and receive justifying righteousness, then if we sin even once thereafter, we would rightly be accused of being lost again in our trespasses and sins. Even if we sin once, because what's God's standard? Does God let people into heaven who've scored 99.999%? Yes or no? No. You have to get 100. Who's capable of getting 100? Nobody. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God's standard is absolute perfection. If you sin even once, you're damnable. So therefore we must have a righteousness that is outside of ourselves, a righteousness that is imputed. And we receive that through Christ. So when we do sin after our justification, and we all do, unless we receive it on our deathbed, deathbed repentance, Romans, 3, or Romans chapter 8, verse 33 says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can throw mud at us? Who can say, well, you're not actually saved? Because the Bible says it is God who justifies, period. It is God who justifies. So we don't get any credit for it. It also increases our assurance and it protects us from allegations. People say, you're not saved. You're not saved. You're not saved. Because I saw you sin. I, saw, I heard you lie. I, I know you, you covet. I know some of your relationships are a little rocky. You say you're justified, but you're not. You're like, oh, just a second. I want you to know my justification is not based upon me, not my efforts, but upon Christ. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is nobody, because it is God who justifies. So if you follow that passage back up, that chapter back up to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, it, it talks about condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law was powerless to do, meaning the righteous statutes of God, for what the law was powerless to do, and then it was weakened by sinful man. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. So that's why we're, we're able to worship Christ, either theology to doxology, we're able to worship him and adore him because we're not taking any credit for our salvation. So we're then justified through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This leads to the fifth step, which is adoption. This is where there's a removal of enmity. We're granted the status of sons and daughters, and we become, as I alluded to earlier, joint heirs with Christ. Romans chapter eight carries this idea forward in verses 12 through 17. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, which, which implies that we once were slaves and we were marked by fear, fear of death, fear of God, fear of self, all these fears, 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 fears that are prevalent in the life of the unbeliever. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received one of the most glorious statements in scripture. Drum roll, please. The spirit of adoption as sons 
by whom we cry, Abba, that's Aramaic, Father, that's the Greek. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. There is an eternal affirmation for those that have their doctrine right. There's an eternal affirmation. I hope you're receiving it even now as you listen to God's word preached. There's an eternal dynamic. You're listening to it with your ears. The little bones in your ears are banging away. You're receiving knowledge. You're processing it. But in your soul, you're being affirmed. Yes, this is my story. This is my song. This is... I, I know what this is about. I've, I've received it. I've experienced it. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Who inherits the estate of the parents? The children. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. Now, when it says provided we suffer, it's not where you got to do certain things, but we inevitably will do certain things because we've already preached in the doctrine of union with Christ. In our union with Christ, we will suffer with him. Our lives are inextricably linked to Christ's. And in that context, we have the assurance of adoption as sons and daughters. I don't know about you, but I'm always fascinated by, this, by adoption stories. I wasn't adopted and Susie and I did not have the privilege to adopt. But when someone tells me I was adopted, there's something about that. I just find that to be a beautiful thing. That two parents will take a child that they did not bear and make that child their own. That's beautiful. And it's actually grounded in the gospel. This is why historically Christians were the ones most committed to adoption. Christians were the ones most committed to adoption because it was an expression of the gospel. What is adoption all about? Well, it takes place in the gospel narrative. We're not relegated to slavery. So God's like, hey, come here, bow before me. You're gonna repent? Yeah, I'm gonna repent. You're gonna trust in me? Yeah, I'm trusting in you. Okay, I'm gonna justify you. Now get into the kitchen and start mopping the floor. Muck out the cattle stalls. And for the rest of your life, you can grovel and you can serve me and you can be my slave. That might be how even a, mildly benevolent king might handle it, but not God. God adopts us as his sons and he gives us full access to his kingdom riches, full access to eternal life. We're adopted into the true church, the true church, because there is an apostate church alive and well on the planet. And we become God's children. And so we address him as Abba father, Abba Sometimes people say it means daddy. Well, sort of, but it's a little reductionistic. Abba is the Aramic term for father, but it does carry with it a personal intimate idea. It's, it's a more personal way that you would address your father. So it might be the equivalent of saying, hey, dad, as opposed to on your birth certificate when it says, who is your father? And you write in your father's name. It's father's a bit, bit more of a formal term, bit more of a distant term. Dad, I would think in, in our culture, or maybe you come from a different culture where you have a similar word, is, is a bit more personal and intimate. That's the idea that we can approach God and speak to him in an intimate way, both as our father, that's our status, we're sons and daughters, but there's also an intimate conversation that takes place there. So these are all the beauties of how God's working in our lives 
in our salvation. So what happens next? So we have three then continuing aspects or continuing completion aspects to our salvation. So here I am. I have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm now his son. I've been adopted. Now what? Well, here's what happens next. We begin the process of sanctification, which literally comes from the word holy. So positionally, we're holy. Our sins have been wiped away. Sanctification is a progression. It's a progressive change of the mind. So you start to think differently. Wow. I don't think the way that I used to about money. I don't think the way that I used to about sex. I don't think the way I used to about marriage. I don't think the way I used to about politics. I don't think the way I used to about my job. So your mind starts to change. You start to think differently. Your mind starts to change. Your, your heart, your attitude towards others. You might still get angry and then, okay, I need to surrender that to the Lord. You're jealous. It's not right. You surrender that to the Lord. You're bitter. You surrender that to the Lord. Your heart begins to change. You catch yourself earlier. And the more time you're with Christ, the quicker you catch it the less you allow sin to, to build up like plaque on your teeth. How do you deal with plaque? Brush it off every day. Don't wait for it to build all up. It's gross or wreck your teeth. And in the same way, we, we mustn't allow sin to build up in our lives. We clean it out as it, as it comes. We deal with attitudes. The hands, maybe literally, I used to punch people. Now I don't. Now I pat them on the back. <laughs> or I used to steal people's possessions. Now I don't, I give or I used to use my middle finger inappropriately. Now I just scratch my ear with it, right? So your, your mind changes, your, your heart changes, your hands change, and you bring your morality and your mindset and your heart into conformity with your status as a child of God. Now there's a Holy Spirit dynamic here. So now, now we're resourced. So think about this. What are our major resources? How about the word of God? The word of God is more than sufficient. I mean, it's, it's hard to get through in a year, 10 years. You could spend your whole life studying the word of God and you're still like, wow, there's a lot there I haven't learned. It's like a well that never runs dry. You just keep hauling up buckets of water. So we have the word of God and then we also have the spirit of God. That's a resource, convicts, reminds, equips. And then we have this, the body of Christ and all the diversity of the body of Christ all the benefits of Christ's body. So we're benefiting from one another, teaching, encouraging, building up, providing, mourning with, weeping with, laughing with, celebrating with. We have all of these things going on in our lives and the Holy Spirit, his goal, remember last week we talked about predestination, foreknowledge, election, why? Why is he doing that? Well, here's what Romans 8:29 tells us. This is his goal. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. To what? To the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's an, an immediate goal. And then there's a long-term goal. Think of it as an arch. The long-term goal 
is that Christ might be preeminent, meaning that Christ, that's what it means by firstborn, that he might be exalted, that he might be lifted up. Then there's a smaller curve under that. Your conformity to Christ's likeness. As you are conformed to Christ, Christ is made preeminent in creation. So in our sanctification, we are equipped and called to become more like Jesus. So therefore, God's purpose in foreknowledge and predestination is that you might be conformed to the image of Christ, that Christ might be exalted in our world. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we learn that it, this is synergistic. So now we're participating with God and our, our justification is monergistic, meaning it's one source, it's one energied, strictly from God. Our sanctification is synergistic, meaning now we're saved, we're being sanctified, we have the resources, so now we're hearing truth and we become responsible to act. And we can't say any longer, well, I'm a sinner, I, I can't obey. No, you, you now have the spirit of God. You have the people of God. You have the word of God. So you can obey. Don't ever believe the lie that you're destined to a life of sin. Well, I'm a Christian, but this has been my temptation. I'll never overcome it. That's a lie. That is a lie. You are well-resourced to overcome every sin. Now there's so many, will you ever overcome them all this side of heaven? No, but you will always be overcoming sin. Look what it says in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, speaking of our status as sons, beloved, we are God's children now. So on the other side of adoption, what am I supposed to look for? We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, meaning we're not yet fully glorified, but we're definitely saved. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, who's everyone? Those that are saved, those that are the beloved. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, if this was about justification, we'd have a problem here. Okay, I don't get it. That's, is it the righteousness of Christ or my own efforts to purify myself? But this is not about justification. It's, it's a message to the beloved that I now am responsible to listen to God's word and to obey him. And if I'm struggling, there's something called accountability. There's something called church discipline. There's something called repentance. There's something called the word of God I need to spend time in. So listen to this. We do not have justification because we are sanctified but we do have sanctification because we're justified. That's the order. We have sanctification because we are justified. Justification enables us to be in Christ so that we might become more like Christ. Sanctification. So in justification, we're put in Christ. In sanctification, we become more like Christ. So you plant a seed, that's God's job. He plants the seed and now there's an apple tree. What do apples do? They don't grow pears, they grow apples. They don't grow oranges, they grow apples. Orange trees grow oranges, apple trees grow apples. That's the way of the world. If you see an apple on a tree, you don't have to be like, oh, I wonder what kind of tree that is. Better do some genetic testing, it's obvious. The fruit tells you this is clearly an apple tree. And in the same way, when you look at spiritual fruit, you look at someone and you're like, that person used to be 
pretty rebellious, but now I'm seeing things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That's spiritual fruit. That's not human-induced fruit. That's spiritual fruit. So that person's a Christian. How do I know? Their profession is accurate and their lifestyle has been transformed. So this is why we don't say to people, all you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ and you're good to go. You can sin and live in you know, easy believism. No, you're not saved by your efforts, but your salvation will lead to spiritual fruit. So what about apostates and backsliders? Those that associate with Christ? Well, some will be self-deceived. Okay, just like in any religion, you're gonna have people that come into churches like ours and like, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, I, I like this. I could get into this. This is gonna become like my, my new dojo. This is gonna become my new club. Um, this is gonna become my new social network. And I kind of like what I'm hearing. And I'm feeling it, man. And I'm meeting people and I could get into this. So they, they join a religion. It's called biblical Christianity. Why should that surprise us? I mean, people join fake religions all the time and they actually are pretty dedicated to them. It's your, your, your level of dedication isn't indicative of the truthfulness of your conversion. So there's people that are incredibly dedicated to false religion. So it's not your level of dedication that defines your spirituality. There will be people like that. There'll be people like Judas who was a spiritual fraud. It's like, well, how do I know then that I'm a believer. Well, one of the things that you will see in your life to prove your faith, apart from true faith, true belief, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, the affirmation of God's people and spiritual fruit is perseverance. So this is the next one, perseverance. We believe in the perseverance of the true saints of God. Romans 8, 35 to 39, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The truly saved will be sealed and sanctified until the day of redemption. I'll give you another verse, Philippians 1.6. For he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So we will persevere to the end. Are we gonna have times we might backslide or maybe take a little bit of a nosedive and then, yeah, I gotta repent. Yeah, there's gonna be some of this but there's not gonna be this in the life of a true believer. So someone's like, I walked from the faith. I don't believe in Christ anymore. You don't say, well, you used to be a true believer and now you're not. You say, actually, you've just demonstrated you never were. You never were. You were just part of the club, part of the team. We thought you were. We might even have let you preach because you were so convincing. But over the course of time, you've been proven to be a Judas. The true believer will persevere to the end. Finally, we, we encounter glorification. This results in our future perfection. So this takes place after death or the second coming of the Lord. Romans 8, 
uh, 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is an anticipated glorification. It's not fully now, but here's the way it works. I still have a, a, a flawed human body. God has not yet redeemed my body. I will experience death unless Jesus Christ comes back. But on the other side of that, I will be fully glorified in the eternal kingdom of God. And so this explains why in my spiritual man, I long for the things of God. And sometimes in my natural man, I long for the things of this world. Paul talked about that. Sometimes I do what I don't wanna do. Sometimes I say what I don't wanna say. So you're constantly wrestling. You're constantly wrestling with that. And I get it. I've been a Christian for a long time. If you're a new Christian, you're like, man, if you only knew what I'm doing, I'm saying, I'm thinking, look, I get it. You're probably not gonna surprise anybody if you really self-disclosed because we all wrestle with the old man, the old nature. It's still there, those, those old desires, those old yearnings, that the temptation to turn back, the stupid thought, the, the, the inappropriate words, the ridiculous attitude. I get it. Every mature Christian in this room gets that, but don't give up. Don't give in, don't throw in the towel. Trust in Christ, avail yourself of his grace. Ask for forgiveness daily. Don't let it build up like plaque in the teeth. Avail yourself of his forgiveness daily and know that one day you will be freed from all sin, from the power of sin, the presence of sin in your life. Brothers and sisters, having heard all this, we do not mourn like the rest of men. We have resurrection hope. We are not cocky about our salvation. We're not prideful. We don't take any credit for it. We're not rattled by death doesn't rattle our cage. We live in confident assurance that we know where we will be. And we sleep well at night because while we labor hard for the Lord during the day, we know that he is still very much on his throne. These are ways in which our doctrine leads to worshipful practice. We trust and rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. So be encouraged by these words because you truly are loved by God.